So uh, I'm doing this little series, which is kind of interjected into our James series, and this is called Cameos of Christmas. I hope to do four messages. This is the second one. And what I'd like to look at this morning is the glory of God, and I'd like to look at through the eyes of the shepherds. So the second little cameo is through the eyes of the shepherds, and I'd just like to um, recap five minutes of what I said last week for some of you that weren't here. I want to encourage you to um, get onto the podcast and catch up if you weren't here last week. But how many of you have ever enjoyed um, Charles Dickens's Christmas Carol? I love that story. I, I see it. I try and watch it every year just to remind myself. And I, I saw a new version of it this week. Uh, I watched this week. It was a D- the Disney version of A Christmas Carol. Jim Carrey is the main character, and there's a whole lot of others. It's a brilliant, really, really wonderful version of the story. And if you've never watched The Christmas Carol, I encourage you to watch it because it's a wonderful allegory about some of the heart of what Christmas is about. And it doesn't point to Christ, but it's a great story, all right? So go and enjoy it. And uh, Charles Dickens said this. He said, I will honor Christmas in my heart and to try and keep it all the year. And I love that sentiment. And I also, I think I mentioned last week, Helen Keller, the famous author, Blind Mute, who said... The only blind person at Christmas time is he who has not got Christmas in his heart. These are profound thoughts. These are, these are really, really um, challenging thoughts that uh, those two people have brought. And uh, I trust that this morning you'd be encouraged and in your own thinking around Christmas and what we actually celebrate at this time of the year. I said last time many Christians um, enjoy Christmas, it's a time of joy, celebration, family, and lots of food. And these are the things that I love about Christmas. Uh, it's a time of extraordinary worship and celebration. On the, that's all on one, on one hand. On the other hand, I think many of you would agree that Christmas is, always, is also a time of unnecessary materialism, necessary commercialism. Uh, I just read on the news this week that, um, you know, Thanksgiving is a big American holiday. All of America gets together to say thank you for what God has done for them. It's a wonderful celebration. And then they have these things on called Black Friday, which is their extraordinary time of uh, of shopping. And some woman in Los Angeles sprayed a whole lot of other people with pepper mace so that she could be the first to get to the sales the day after Thanksgiving. I think there's something profoundly a profound picture in that for us of exactly what we shouldn't be thinking about and valuing <laughs> at Christmas time. If you have to spray people with mace to get to the front of the queue in the cells, there is something wrong. <laughs> there really is something wrong. So let's not give in to that side of materialism and commercialism uh, that that points to. And I want to just remind you, whatever your view of Christmas, whether it's positive or negative, I, I want to ask you to try and take a fresh look at Christmas uh, what we truly do celebrate at this time, everyone has a perspective, everyone has a viewpoint. And what I said to you last time is I think this incredible richness in our lives that we can gain from learning from other people's perspectives. It requires humility to walk through life and uh, learn from other people and continually um, uh, live a life of a student. What I mean by that is that you're always learning, always saying, God, there's more, always teach me more, not ever coming to a place where you think you've arrived and you understand everything. We were just chuckling this week. Helen was uh, reflecting on the story of these guys that led a church in their 20s, and um, they used to do a whole lot of uh, children's um, parenting courses. And so in their 20s, they had courses, and the title of the course was this, 10 Ways to Raise Your Children. And they taught it passionately. 10 ways, 10 ways to raise your children, try to get the church to all get into these 10 principles. And then in their 30s, 
they, um, they uh, had another course, and it was simply entitled, Ten Suggestions About How to Raise Your Kids. <laughs> and then in their 40s, they had another course, which was entitled, Ten Things I Would Suggest That You Might Like to Consider in Raising Your Children. We found the older we get, the more confusing it gets. The older we get, the less black and white things are. And that's not because of compromise, it's just because the life is incredibly complicated. And we all need the grace of God, don't we? We all need the gospel to help us desperately. So I think we can uh, gain from many perspectives, but I personally love Christmas time. I love everything about it. We, we're going to be away this Christmas time, and I love uh, the green and the red of Christmas. I love Christmas trees. I love snow. I love mild wine. I love turkey. I love getting together with my mates. I love everything about it. And most of all, I love the fact that we can preach the gospel at Christmas time. Messiah has come. Emmanuel, God with us. This is an incredible mystery. This is an, a profound thing. And I want to ask you this, this Christmas that you would consider it in a whole fresh new way. And last time uh, uh, I showed, uh, I hope clearly, that the angels can teach us much, much about Christmas time and the, the perspective that the, angel, uh, the angels brought. Uh, the Bible describes them as cherubim, seraphim, uh, living creatures. Revelation uh, describes them as living creatures. They were worshippers. They were messengers. The, the angel Gabriel, Gabriel, that was his primary responsibility, was to come and bring three announcements about the birth of the Messiah, and he did that. And we had a look at that last time. And the encouragement of the angels to us is that they are calling us, the redeemed ones, the saved ones, the ecclesia, the church, they are calling us together with all the angels in heaven to worship God at this plan of redemption that he has for humanity. That's what they've come to do. That's, why, that's their part in the story. It is incredible. It is magnificent. And I want to encourage you, to join with the angels this Christmas and to worship God for His amazing plan of redemption that He's lavished upon an undeserving, bitter, twisted race of humanity. And so I concluded last time by looking at 1 Peter 1.12, which says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven the things into which angels long to look. And uh, I had a, a look at a commentary, Adam Clark, his commentary on 1 Peter says this, that that little phrase, into which angels long to look, simply means that even the holy angels are struck with astonishment at the plan of, the hum, of human redemption and justly wonder at the incarnation, that is God made man, of that infinite object of our desire and our adoration, if then these things be objects of deep consideration to the angels of God, how much more should they not be to us? And my last point was that actually angels are not redeemed creatures. They will never experience the grace of God for themselves. We experience the grace of God in our lives. How much more should we come worship and adore Him for what He has done at this time of the year? So, today I want to have a look at uh, the Christmas story from the point of view of the shepherds. And uh, all these little cameos are out of Luke chapter 2, so if you've got your Bible and you'd like to follow, I'm going to just uh, focus on a couple of verses, three points, and then some more worship, some more glory. Where's Becky gone? Upstairs. Oh, I hope she can lead us at the end. All right, so um, 
Luke chapter 2, verse 16 says this. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Beautiful verse. I just want to start with a question. I mean, can you imagine the surprise of Mary to have just given birth? Ladies, you know, those of you that have given birth, you're pretty exhausted at the end of the process, aren't you? And you just want to be alone with your child in the hospital bed for a couple of days. So there Mary is. She's just given birth. And uh, pretty soon after that, these smelly, dirty, stinky shepherds rock up in a, in a bedroom stable and say, we've come to worship your child. Can you imagine the surprise? It must have been absolute, incredibly uh, surprising for her to have these people rock up and uh, say, we've come to worship your child. And it's striking to me that the shepherds, the first thing they do is they worship. They kneel at the manger and they worship. And I said last time, I think it's even more uh, striking to me, is because they were the poorest of the poor. They were the the ones that were in the society were the lowest of the low, the shepherds were, and yet they, they come and f- the first response of their heart is to worship. And they really were simple people with simple lives. And when you read further in the chapter 2, uh, all that, that uh, Luke has to say, is, he says this, in the same region there were shepherds out of the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. That is the sum total of, of what the Scripture describes these people, these men, these boys. Simple people living simple lives, and um, there we are introduced very simply with quite, a, quite brevity to the life of these shepherds. And um, I want to just pick on those, that verse and preach out of that verse this morning. It says, first of all, in the same region. So this is the region of Bethlehem. And it's very interesting uh, that Bethlehem, is, so the, the, the hills surrounding Bethlehem were long part of a pastoral shepherding tradition in Israel. Um, it was the shepherds uh, that uh, gathered to, to look after the sheep. Uh, it's the same place that David looked after his father's sheep, Jesse, on the hills surrounding Bethlehem. It's a good place to graze flocks. In fact, in Genesis thirty-five twenty-one and Micah 4, 8, there's this phrase that's used, the Tower of Eda, which really means the Tower of the Flocks. And scholars are not quite sure what that means, but there have been three suggestions, and here they are. Some, some say that the, the towers of Eda refer to Jerusalem, to the holy city, and it has specific reference to the sheep gate. I don't know if you know this, but in the Old Testament, there were many gates that people entered um, Jerusalem in and out of because everything was separated. So there was a temple gate. The, the, around the temple, there was the fish gate where fish came in and out of. There was the dung gate where dung came in and out of. There was the Benjamin gate where young people came in and out of. And there was the, um, the sheep gate and various other gates all surrounded the holy city. Okay? And so some people say it was through this gate, the, the sheep gate, that the sheep that were going to be sacrificed in the temple would enter the city through the sheep gate. So that's the first interpretation. Other interpretation is it refer, they say the Tower of Eda refers to Bethlehem, to the birthplace of David, the shepherd king of Israel. And then the, th- the third interpretation is that actually the Towers of Eda, the Towers of the Flocks, is to be taken literally. In other words, surrounding Bethlehem's hills were places, high towers, if you like, in which the shepherds would have 
gone up to look and survey all their flocks to make sure they could see anything that was uh, coming to rob them of their flocks. And so just as the, the, the shepherds were watching over their flocks that night, the angels came. Um, some scholars say, well, that's a reference, the, the, tower of, uh, the towers of the flocks is a reference to what they actually would have been doing. And for me, a more stunning uh, thought, though, is this, is that the sheep that were grazed around Bethlehem's hills weren't just ordinary sheep. They were actually the sheep that were used primarily as the sheep that were sacrificed in the temple. And so those shepherds had a responsibility to take care of sheep, to raise these sheep, unblemished sheep. They, they will be taken and sacrificed in the temple as an atonement for sin. It's an incredible thought if you just dwell on it. And in the first century, we know this, that just for the Passover in the first century, 250,000 sheep were sacrificed in Jerusalem just for one festival. 250,000 sheep in the first century were sacrificed for uh, the Passover festival. So these guys had this responsibility, these shepherds, to, to, to bring up these unblemished sheep for sacrifice. And the, the second thing that verse says is that they were keeping watch over their flocks. And um, most Bible scholars would say that the, 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 the reference to keeping watch referred to four watches that were in the night, evening, midnight, the cock crowing hour, and morning. And so these guys would rotate for two or three hours at a time, keeping watch over the flocks uh, from predators, wolves, foxes, other predators, and bandits that would come and steal from them. And so my point is very simple, that the life of a shepherd was lonely, it was hard work, there was some danger involved, and it was not a very well-paid profession. Uh, they lived a life of poverty, these people that were shepherds. And for me, that, that's not the, the kind of, the, even more than that, because of the kind of work that they were involved in, these shepherds, they were considered to be unclean, ceremonially. Right? Because the, the law, the Mosaic law said if you walked, worked with blood, you were ceremonially unclean. The, the Mosaic law said if you worked with a dead body, if you touched a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean and you couldn't go to the temple. So here are these shepherds that are considered ceremonially unclean. They would have helped to see lambs birth. They would have, uh, that would have exposed them to blood. They would have disposed of animals that were killed. That would have brought them into contact with dead bodies. So the very people who under the law are responsible for raising unblemished sheep that can be used as sacrifices in the temple themselves are excluded from the temple because they are unclean. Don't you find that ironic? Added to that burden of uncleanness is the fact that shepherds were required to be with their flocks all the time. And so... Not only were they separate from, from God's plan for his people, but they would have found it hard to get to the temple where they could have found uh, atonement for their sin. So they were in this incredible catch-22, these shepherds. They were raising the very sheep that were required by the law to pay the sacrifice, and yet they couldn't get to the temple and they couldn't find atonement for, 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 their, for, for their sin. And that's often what happens in a highly legalistic spiritual system is there is a catch-22 and we're kind of trapped. They're victims of the religious system. And yet there's this incredible moment that they experience on the hills of Bethlehem. And I was just reflecting, there are, there are many moments of wonder in our lives. 
that are forever etched into our hearts and in our brains, aren't they? Uh, for me, I just want to give you some examples from my own life. I, whenever you hear an extraordinary piece of music that brings you great joy or wonder, it's amazing that every time you hear that piece of music again, it transports, it transports you back instantly to that moment when you first heard it. Have you ever experienced that? I used to have a tape recorder in my, you see how old I am. I had a cassette recorder in my first car. And it was always incredible to me that um, when, you, when you switched off at night and you, whatever you were thinking or, or, or feeling at that time, the next day when you switched the car on and pushed the, the tape recorder, instantly the music was where you were the night before. Incredible thing. And uh, music has that kind of power sense of wonder in our lives. Um, there are also moments of great sadness in our lives that we'll always remember. Uh, I'll never forget the moment I received a text message from my brother. I was with Helen in Sydney. We had just had a week of ministry in Sydney, in Australia. We we're overlooking this beautiful, beautiful harbor. The Sydney harbor is incredibly um, beautiful. It was extraordinary that day and simply got this little text message from my brother, Mum's gone. That's it. Mum's gone. And she just passed away after a very brave fight against cancer. And so for me, Sydney will always have that connotation. Every time I go back, it's like it's burnt into my brain. I can't help it. It's just that's the way it is. What about um, moments of sheer pleasure? That uh, it's, I, I remember the first time I got a hole-in-one at Houghton Golf Course. And there was late afternoon, five wood off the tee, 220-meter par three hole, I creamed it straight off the tee, and it flew straight towards the hole. I thought, that's, that's going to be close. And the sun was coming. Well, the, it was in the shadows already, the hole. And so we walked up to the, to, the, to the hole, and I was looking for my ball. I couldn't find my ball. I thought, that's strange. It went straight for the hole. So the guy said to me, my partner said, well, perhaps you should look in the hole. And so I looked in the hole, and there enough, there was my ball. Didn't even see it go in. But uh, extraordinary moment of pleasure. The first time I broke 80 on the golf course, I remember that day clearly. Sheer pleasure. There, there are moments that take your breath away. Uh, John, I'll never forget when Helen walked down the aisle. It was an amazing, amazing moment in my life. I just thought, uh, this is not happening. Like, this happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. Oh, but the joyful, happy times when we saw our boys born. Incredible times in your life. And uh, my point is this, is that these are all little things that have a sense of wonder or excitement or sadness that we'll remember forever, but surely nothing can compare to what those shepherds must have experienced that evening. The absolute thrill, the breathtaking splendor, that magnificent moment when the angels and the glory of God appeared to them on that hillside. It must have been absolutely extraordinary. And so Luke describes it quite simply in Luke chapter 2, verse 9. He just says this, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone all around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in a swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a great multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth be peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. And you know, it says that the shepherds were terrified. <laughs> they were filled with fear. And I was just thinking about 
that, that this week. I think most, all of the people in the, in the Christmas story weren't quite prepared for what happened. And I must be quite frank, if the glory of God was manifest right here, right now amongst us, the brilliant uncreated light of the sum of all of God's attributes, if it was to appear here, we would also, quite frankly, I suggest to you, we would be absolutely terrified. That's what the word Shekinah means. It's the Old Testament word for the glory of God. Shekinah simply means the brightness, the perfection of all the attributes of God. His, his omniscience, His, his, his uh, power, His wrath, His love, His anger, everything. The sum of all the attributes of God in uncreated light amongst us. The Shekinah presence of God. That's what it means. The pure, brilliant, uncreated light. That's what the shepherds saw. And in the Old Testament, the glory of God was seen as evidence of God's presence with His people. God with His people was seen in the glory of God. And there are, I just want to mention three examples. Exodus 24 verse 16 says, The glory of the Lord, that is the uncreated light of God, the glory of the Lord, dwelt on Mount, on Mount Sinai and, the, and it covered for it for six days. And on the seventh day, God called Moses out into the midst of the cloud. So, God says to Moses, come up into my glory. And Moses goes up the mountain and gets the Ten Commandments. Uh, we see in Numbers 16, 19, when the tabernacle is dedicated, that's the, um, not the permanent structure, but the tabernacle that they took with them in the desert. It said the Korah assembled and all the congregation against, um, against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Again, there's this manifest presence, this shining glory of God amongst them. And thirdly, when the temple in Jerusalem is dedicated in 1 Kings 10, 1 Kings 8 verse 10, it says, When the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. There's this amazing sense of the power and the, the absolute awesome presence of God amongst them, and they cannot stand. They are absolutely lost in the wonder of God's glory. The thing to me that is so striking, though, is that in the midst of the very glory of God being with them, the Israelites, they still began to stray towards idolatry, towards pagan worship, towards immorality, with the very, very glory of God amongst them. That's incredible. And uh, our hearts haven't changed, because when, even when God is doing incredible things amongst us, our hearts tend towards idolatry, our hearts tend towards paganism, our hearts tend towards immorality. And so what does God do? He sends a, uh, the whole Old Testament story, is his plan of redemption, and so he sends prophets to the, to the Israelites, and he, he tries to woo them back and call them, and he warns them through all sorts of prophets. And eventually there's this guy called Ezekiel. And God uses Ezekiel powerfully to prophesy and to speak to the Israelites and call them back and to warn them, try and get their attention about their spiritual adultery. And the great tragedy is that step by step, Ezekiel watches the glory of God, the manifest presence of God, leave Israel. And it is described quite clearly in the book of Israel. It says, first, the glory leaves the temple. And then it says, the glory leaves the city of Jerusalem. And ultimately, the glory of God leaves the people of Israel. And the culmination of that we see in Ezekiel eleven twenty three, And there are these tragic verses in Ezekiel eleven twenty three, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. 
And so the manifest presence of God leaves the temple, leaves the city, leaves the people. And it's, the last time it's mentioned in the Old Testament is that it says it's on the hill, on the east side of the city. And after that in the Old Testament, the only references to the glory of God that we can read of are future concerned. They talk about the glory of God in the future, not in the present. The glory of God coming again, as it once was. So there's no expression in the Bible after that verse in Ezekiel in the Old Testament of the present glory of God. It's always future orientated. And the next time it's mentioned is 600 years later, where it says the glory of God comes with the angels to announce the birth of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? The next time the glory of God, the manifest presence of God is talked about is on the hills of Bethlehem where the angels announce and say, Messiah has come. And it says the angels announce it and the glory of God fills the heavens. Man, that is incredible. And John, I love one of my favorite verses. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as the glory as of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. Jesus came to us full of grace and full of truth. And so they experienced this incredible glory, the shepherds. And it evokes in their hearts wonder, and it evokes worship. And some fear, because there's this, this, this incredible presence with them. And so, for hundreds of years, the glory of God had not been seen, but now it had returned, and it was present as the shepherds, who were the outcasts of the religious system. The shepherds who were cut off from uh, being part of the temple worship, they were cut off. That very night, they found new hope in the angel's message to them, that Messiah had come and was making a way for them the outcast, the lost, the broken, those that were separated from God. And so John Gill, a commentator, he says this. He says, To the shepherds, the first notice of Christ's birth was given. Not to princes, not to chief priests, not to the learned men from Jerusalem, but to weak, common, illiterate men, whom God is pleased to choose and to call and reveal His secrets to as He hides them from the wise and the prudent, to the confusion, but to the glory of His grace. This was the precursor of what the kingdom of Christ would be, and by and to whom the gospel would be preached. The gospel is, not, Paul says, not many of you are wise, not many of you are rich, not many of you are any of those things, but God has called the foolish things of this world to stun and show His glory to the wise. The gospel. So any of you that feel weak, unintelligent, uh, I want to just say you're joining a great band of multitude throughout history. All of us that preach the gospel are not wise. Not, not many of us are wealthy. Not many of us are intellectual in the way that the world speaks intellectually. But we preach the gospel of Jesus. You join with everybody who's like that. So if you feel insufficient in any way, come and join the great band of insufficient people who live by the glory of God and live by the grace of God. So, from a human standpoint, it isn't, it's amazing that God would show himself first to these shepherds, the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor. What is even more amazing to me, as I was thinking this week, is that God chooses that word, shepherd, to describe himself to us. I am the great shepherd, Jesus says. 
He identifies in the way that he identifies, the, the way that he describes himself, he describes himself as the great shepherd. I find that incredible. So these shepherds, outcast, isolated, not allowed to go to the temple, cut off from the hope of their nation, they discovered from the mouths of the angels that they weren't forgotten by God, that they weren't cast out by God, but he had chosen them to be the first ones to hear the gospel that God had made a way, and through this child, creation and the world would be changed forever. It is something to wonder at. And so the great shepherd, John tells us, John 10, 11, the great shepherd came to lay down his life for his sheep. Hebrews 13, 20 says, the great shepherd purchased for all of us his sheep. By his blood, he purchased life for us. Um, 1 Peter 2, 25 describes the great shepherd, Jesus, as the guardian of our souls. I love that. Whenever you're feeling insecure, you're feeling a little bit down, just remember, Jesus is the guardian of your soul. He is watching over you. That should delight us. He's watching over us. And then 1 Peter 5 verse 4 says, The chief shepherd will come back for those that who are his own and reward them with a crown of unfading glory. God is coming back. Jesus is coming back, the great shepherd of the sheep, to reward those that he's called, those that he's owned, those that have loved him and, uh, and, and given themselves for his kingdom, and he's going to reward them with an unfading crown of glory. What an amazing gospel. So I've said this, I want to say it again. The first response of the angels is to worship. After hearing this incredible message, they didn't need to find a cathedral. They didn't need to go to the temple in the stable where they were. They simply begin to worship God for his plan of redemption. And uh, Luke describes it like this in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened which the Lord has made known. Their immediate response is to worship, go to the stable and find this child and to worship him. And as I was reflecting on that, I thought this, our lives are characterized not so much about, by what happens to us, but how we respond to what happens to us. That's true for both what is good and what is bad that happens to us. Uh, I know we've been talking about suffering and talking to some of you, and this, we're think, thinking through this thing of suffering and, and uh, Christians that suffer. I just was reflecting the other day, I read this thing on Job. The first response of Job, after his, everything has been taken away from him, do you want to know what his first response is? He gets on his knees and he worships God. <laughs> Incredible. In that very simple act, he's saying, God, you are sovereign, I trust you completely. I don't know what's going on, but I trust you completely. How we respond speaks hugely more than our words do. <laughs> we can say all we like with our words, but how we actually respond shows something of the heart, shows something of where our trust really is. And I don't say that to point a finger at anybody. I simply say that to point you to the shepherds. The first response that they have is to worship. To say, thank you, God, for what you've done. They pour themselves out in worship. The second response they have is they want to tell everybody else. That's what it says in Luke 2.17. When they saw it, they made known 
the saying that had been told them concerning the child. They went and spoke as quickly as they could to everyone about Jesus and this Christ child that had been born. So the shepherds were the first to hear the message of the gospel. They were also the first to tell the message of the gospel to all that they could and all they came into contact with. So their hearts simply were bursting with the wonder of what they had seen, what they had experienced. And so their first response is to worship. The second response is to share it with others, telling the whole story, the angel, the baby, the manger, the glory of God. And I want to suggest to you that is true worship. That is true worship, that we simply kneel before Christ in wonder and we stand before others and we proclaim what Christ has done for us. We are sometimes in humble silence before him and at other times we boldly shout out what Jesus has done in our lives. That is true worship. So I want to ask you this morning, what is your uh, first response this, this Christmas time? Is it to wonder? Is it to worship? Is it to tell others? Or is it to debate about unhelpful things, about whether we should or shouldn't celebrate the birth of Jesus? I think there are big issues at stake here, that some other things just need to take second place and just get out of our lives. They are distractions. Keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is the gospel. The main thing is the good news. The main thing is Messiah has come. The main thing is that all who were outcast, all who are lost, all are broken, a way for them has now been made. Surely that is something we should celebrate. The last point, Luke 2.20, there is joyous celebration. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen, all they had heard, and all that had been told them. So these simple men, these these um, simple shepherds, they hear the good news, they believe the good news, their hearts and their minds are convinced, they go back to their everyday calling, they go back to taking care of the sh- their, their flocks, but they are different people. There's something changed in their hearts. There's a joy in their hearts. They go back to their day jobs, but they go back to their day jobs differently. Because God has done something, He's revealed Himself to them, and they're completely transformed. They once were outcasts, no more are they outcasts. They were unfit for the temple, they couldn't stand with their heads held up high. Now they're with every other prophet, every other great person that has gone before them, all the priests that have gone before them, they can celebrate as equals the the birth of Messiah, the announcement of Messiah, because God has come to them and made a way for them. What could be more appropriate? That the birth of the perfect lamb that was to take away the sin of the world, the birth of the perfect lamb is first celebrated by shepherds. (laughs) And I want to conclude by saying this. 2,000 years after they first heard that message where the gospel was announced to poor, forgotten, outcast, broken people, the same message rings out this Christmas to all of us, to everyone that feels outcast, to everyone that feels forgotten, to everyone that feels alienated from God, to everyone that feels cut off from His people, to all that feel that they are far from Him. I want to say to you, there's a perfect Lamb. His name is Jesus. There's a perfect Lamb that's been born. He is the perfect one who takes away every sin, takes away everything that separates us from God. His name is Messiah. 
His name is Emmanuel. Messiah, the Savior, has come. God with us. He is here. He is present. And he is the great shepherd that lays down his life for us, his sheep. He's the great shepherd who's bought us by his blood. He is the great shepherd who's the guardian of your soul and my soul. He has our future in his hands. He is the great shepherd who will come back for those that are his own, and he will reward those with a crown of unfading glory. That's what our prom- the promise is for us. Beautiful. And his name is Jesus. So my simple request this, this morning is will you worship him? Will you open your heart to him? Will you adore him? Will you wonder at this great plan of salvation? Will you tell everyone that you can the good news, what Christ has done for you? Will you share that good news with everyone that you come into contact with this Christmas, whether they are people that are well or unhealthy, like Jill has encouraged us with people that she's working with. Can you this Christmas, can you look outside of yourself and give yourself away to someone and share the good news of Jesus this Christmas with somebody else. This is the gospel. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for others. This is the good news. Christ has made a way for us, and we tell, tell of that wonderful way that he's made for us to everyone that we can. Amen?